You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's bow our heads before we begin. Our gracious Father, we are grateful for your word and what it reveals to us about the future and the certainty of our hope in Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to that this morning and be honored here in our study of your word. Help us to see what is true and, and correct those areas of our lives and our areas of our thinking that are not in accordance with your word. Reform us and conform us to the image of Christ, we pray that you would open our eyes and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I finished going through the Gospel of John, and next week Dave Rich is going to be preaching uh, for me. And so I have this one week, and since we're not in John, I kind of feel like a lost puppy wondering, uh, what should I do and where should I go? So I decided that I would take uh, to today and kind of pick up a theme that we've been thinking about and meditating on for the last couple of months, and that is the bodily resurrection of Christ. And so what I'm going to do today is, and some of you who are in adult Sunday school class heard Jess kind of give away what we're going to be doing next and say that I was going to be doing that today, but I'm not introducing that today. We're going to wait until after um, after the message that Dave gives, and then we'll be introducing something new. But in the meantime, I want to grab something, uh, uh, kind of a theme, a topic that's going to eventually arrive us or put us in 1 Corinthians 15. We have to do a little bit of work before we get there, but we will be landing in 1 Corinthians 15 before we're done. Going through the end of the Gospel of John, we were we looked at all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, and we saw some of the characteristics of a resurrected body and of and things that Christ did while he was after he was raised from the dead uh, in his resurrection body. And we saw that uh, Christ had a real body, and that the Lord Jesus's body had some sort of continuity with his pre-crucifixion body, because in his resurrection form, even there were scars in his hands and his feet and on his side that he showed to the disciples as evidence that he had risen from the dead. And yet the resurrection body of Jesus seemed to be somewhat different than his pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection body, in that he seemed to have the ability to appear and disappear at will. Uh, Some have suggested walk through walls, but I don't think that that's what he did. And We talked about that in John. He seemed also to have the ability to travel long distances in only a very brief, short amount of time, if not instantaneously. And we know from Scripture that that body was not subject to death or disease and it would never die again. So since we've been thinking about that and meditating upon that, I made allusions from time to time that we also will be raised from the dead. And so that kind of raises the question for us, at least, as to what will be the nature of our resurrection body. When we are raised from the dead, if that is if that will happen, because that's what Scripture says will happen, then what will what will be the nature of us in a resurrected state? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. When I was a child, of course, I thought as a child and I reasoned as a child, and that applied to my view of heaven as well. And when I was a child, I thought or had a picture of heaven that it would be something akin to what you see in comic strips and uh, something like what you see on television. That it would be some disembodied state where it would be hanging out on a cloud. And this place would be very cloudy, uh, very foggy, wouldn't be able to see really anybody coming up until they were very, very close to me. And um, God would be there, of course. It would be a bright place, and white and clean and no clutter and um, no bad air. Would there be air? I wasn't sure, wasn't sure if there would be air. Um, if there was air there, I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to breathe it or even if I would need to breathe air. And of course, if I needed to breathe air, of course, there would be air there. This is what I would think about for hours, right? And this is what heaven was to me, some sort of floating around in a disembodied state, unable to really touch anything, unable to grasp anything. couldn't really pick things up. And if I saw you there, I'd love to come up and give you a hug or shake your hand. But how do disembodied spirits shake hands or give each other a hug? What is that supposed to look like? And part of my theology of heaven was formed by religious grandparents that I had on both sides of my family who would tell me what heaven was going to be like, and they would say something like, well, it's going to be with God. Okay, God's going to be there, but what does that mean? Does that just mean, like, it's very bright, and we just sort of hang out and and gaze at the brightness that is God? And quite frankly, as an unregenerate individual, hanging out with God for eternity, that didn't appeal to me at all. It's better than hanging out with Satan for eternity, but 
hanging out with God for eternity didn't appeal to me. I would have rather hung out with my best friends. We did all kinds of fun stuff. And part of part of my theology of heaven or my, my vision of heaven as a child and, and even early in my Christian life was shaped by Hollywood. And I'll throw this in uh, just for, as extra. It is, a, it is good, at just as generally speaking, as a general rule not to form your theology from what Hollywood portrays of Christian things. But Hollywood would oftentimes picture heaven or the afterlife in terms like I've just described them to you. And so that's what I thought it was. And I always thought to myself, wouldn't heaven be better if I could spend eternity in a place where there would be rivers and mountains and trees and then outdoors and even indoors and buildings and lakes? Wouldn't it be better if there were fruit trees? What if, wouldn't it be better if you had the ability to eat in heaven and breathe? And rather than floating around in a disembodied state, wouldn't heaven be even better if I could run and jump and skip and ride bikes and climb mountains and and play football and pick up golf if I had the patience. I mean, I would have patience to do golf in eternity and probably even have the ability to do it then so I could pick up golf if I wanted to. And there's all kinds of skills that I could learn. Uh, be better to be able to sort of slap hands with people and hang out and laugh and, and joke. And wouldn't heaven be better that, that way? Wouldn't heaven be better if I could ride bikes with my friends and hang out with my friends and meet new people and spend time there and and to joy, you know what, wouldn't heaven be better if it was the polar opposite of everything that I thought heaven was? That would be better, right? And as it turns out, as it turns out, once I found out that we as God's people, as the righteous, will spend eternity in resurrected, glorified bodies, that rewrites everything about heaven that I thought to be true. Everything. You mean I get a body? Because really what I wanted in heaven was the ability to hang out with my friends and enjoy life everlastingly in a body that would never die, never be diseased, never deteriorate, never suffer pain, never be altered, and I would never age, would never get older and and decrepit. That's what I wanted. I wanted the 1980s to go on forever. That's what I wanted in heaven. I wanted my teenage years to go on indefinitely and for my body to be the same for eternity as it was when I was 18 years old. That's what I wanted. I wanted this life without the death, without the disease, without the destruction, without the loss, without the sorrow, without all of the bad things and all of the good things. That's what I wanted in heaven. The Bible promises that the righteous will spend eternity in resurrected, glorified, immortal, imperishable bodies. And the Bible promises that there will be a resurrection of this creation, a recreation, where all that is around us will be burned up and melt with a fervent heat, and we will dwell in a new heavens and a new earth for all of eternity. But then that raises the question, what will our glorified bodies be like? What does Scripture say about that? So what I want to do is I want to give you a survey of some of the things that we have talked about in the past regarding resurrection the certainty of it, the Old Testament promise of it, New Testament promises of it, maybe a little bit about the timing of these events. And then I want to look at specifically and answer the question, what will our resurrection bodies be like? And for that, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. So for now, I want to give you quickly an overview of some of the promises from Scripture about the coming resurrection. First, we have Old Testament promises. The Old Testament promised that the Messiah would be resurrected. Now, granted, when we look at the Old Testament and compare Old Testament statements about the resurrection and the future and the afterlife, it is much different than looking at the New Testament revelation concerning those same matters, uh, eternal life and eternal death and the future and the afterlife. Uh, the, resur- the, the doctrine of the resurrection is much more clear in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, these things were revealed in seed form. In the New Testament, we full- see the full blossom of the flower effects of that. Uh, the New Testament is the explanation of these things in much clearer and broader strokes and more specific details than what we find in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament did predict that the Messiah would be resurrected. You had to have eyes to see this. Uh, I turned to I turned you to three particular passages as we were going through the closing chapters of John. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, and Psalm 22. Those are probably the three Old Testament passages which speak most clearly of the resurrection of the Messiah. In Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22... The resurrection of the Messiah was portrayed mostly in terms of the contrast between this Messiah who would die and he would suffer and, and he would he, he would die. His life would be taken from him. He would pour himself out unto death. But yet those same passages spoke of that same one after being poured out unto death, seeing the 
seeing the satisfaction of his soul and seeing the, the offspring of what he had done and seeing the results of it and being satisfied in it. And so he had the, the death of the Messiah and then things which the Messiah would do and see and enjoy. And the, the missing part in there, the, the leap that you have to make, is that there would be a resurrection of that same Messiah. You see that in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 53. But then in Psalm 16, you had David speaking of his confidence that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And all the way from David's time, all the way through to the uh, to the time of Jesus, that was kind of assumed to be David. But then, but then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quotes from that psalm, saying, we know David is dead and buried in his tomb is with us until this day. And so when David said that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, David had to be speaking of one who would come after him, one greater than him. And that one who came after him, who was greater than David, is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom indeed his body did not suffer decay. All the Old Testament saints, their bodies suffered decay. But Jesus was unique in that he was not allowed to suffer decay because God raised him from the dead. And so Peter draws uh, that teaching from Psalm, Psalm 16. So the Old Testament taught that the Messiah would be resurrected. And by the way, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Davidic covenant required this. And I mentioned this before. The promise to David was that God would sit one on his throne who would never die and he would rule and reign forever. How does one accomplish that without ever dying? How can one rule and reign forever without dying? Well, he can do that if first he dies, he suffers death, he is resurrected in a glorified form, never to die again, and then he is made king and installed upon David's throne. Then, of course, he can rule and reign forever and never die. And so the whole anticipation of the fulfillment of the the covenant made to David it required a resurrection of the Messiah. All right, the Old Testament promise predicted the resurrection of the Messiah, and the Old Testament predicted and promised the resurrection of the righteous. Let me give you three passages. In Job chapter 19, and what's interesting about Job is it's probably the first book of our Bible written. It wasn't Genesis written because it talks about the creation. No, Moses wrote Genesis, but Moses most likely lived after Job. Of course, he writes about things that were before him, but Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. And Job says, listen to how Job describes what he knew to be true about the future. Job 19, verse 25 and 27. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. And then Job said this, my heart faints within me. Now Job believed that his Redeemer would take his stand upon this earth and that Job... In his flesh, which he knew would be destroyed, but in his very flesh, with his eyes and not another, in his body and not another, he would look upon this Redeemer who would stand upon this earth. That is an an amazing revelation of what the future holds. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. That is a prophecy of the coming resurrection. And Daniel chapter 2, verse 2 speaks of the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. Daniel 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel says there are two people who will be, two groups of people who will be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of the righteous, and the resurrection of the unrighteous as well. The wicked will also be raised from the dead. Hitler will be raised from the dead. All of the wicked Old Testament, all, all the Old Testament people who are wicked will be raised from the dead. They will all get resurrected bodies, but the resurrected bodies of the wicked will be fit for eternal destruction. That is how the worm will consume, and yet their body will never be consumed. Their flesh will burn, and yet never be consumed. It will be a body fit for the eternal punishment which God has ordained for those who will not repent and trust Christ. So the resurrection, the righteous get a resurrected body. The wicked get a resurrected body. Our body is fit for eternal glory and joy. The resurrected body of the unbeliever is fit for eternal damnation. And I'm not talking about today specifically the resurrection of creation or the resurrection of the wicked. If you want more information on that, did a series of newsletters which are on our website. You can read those. It's a three-part series on the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the wicked, and the resurrection of creation. I'm only dealing today with the resurrection of the righteous. All right. The Old Testament predicted the resurrection of the wicked. Now, there is the New Testament promise. And it's woven all the way throughout. The idea of resurrection is woven all the way throughout the New Testament. So much so that you could say that without the doctrine of resurrection, there is no doctrine of Christianity, period. 
Not only without the resurrection of Christ, there is no Christianity, but you remove the doctrine of bodily resurrection from the teachings of Christianity in this life and in the life to come. You remove the doctrine of bodily resurrection from that and you gut Christianity of everything that is meaningful and substantial. Because without the doctrine of the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. What makes Christianity unique among all of the religions of the world is this revelation from God that we will dwell eternally in bodies. All the other religions look forward to a disembodied state or some form of that. Christianity alone gives honor to the body by anticipating bodily resurrection. So, for instance, in Jesus' teaching uh, with the Sadducees, the Sadducees who denied the doctrine of bodily resurrection, they denied all things supernatural, the existence of angels and spirits, and eternal punishment, eternal reward, all of those things. They were the theological liberals of their day. The Sadducees came to Jesus and they proposed to him this preposterous scenario. Uh, Moses said in the law that if a man marries a woman and doesn't have children, that his brother should, and then he dies, that his brother should marry that woman and raise up children for uh, his brother in place of his brother so that his brother could have an inheritance and so that the inheritance would be passed on. So they came to Jesus and they said, this is what Moses taught. Now, here's a scenario, Jesus. A man marries a woman and then he dies. And so his brother marries that same woman and then he dies. And none of them have any kids, of course. And so then the third brother and then the fourth brother and then the fifth brother and then the sixth brother and then the seventh brother. And all seven brothers have her as his wife following the law of Moses. And then he says, but in the resurrection, then whose wife will she be? See, they're trying to trick Jesus into this. You believe in the resurrection. Here's a preposterous scenario. Now tell us how all of this is going to flesh out at the end of time. Now, first of all, if your husband number seven and the six previous men have all died after marrying this woman, I would think that I would think twice about that, right? I would eat every meal out somewhere else. I would get myself a cupbearer, somebody to drink, whatever it is that this woman has been feeding my six brothers. But Jesus said this in Matthew 22, 29. Jesus answered them, you're mistaken in not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. I see that. They didn't understand what the Scriptures taught. This is what the Old Testament teaches. But the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't get that. Nor did they understand the power of God in resurrection. For in the resurrection, Jesus said, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, I have, have you not read what was spoken of to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And there Jesus answered their question. He said, you, 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 your presuppositions that you're bringing to the table are all wrong. You don't understand the power of God, that this is how it is going to unfold. And then he answered, of course, the presupposition that they said that there was no doctrine of the resurrection. And he quoted from the Old Testament, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and aware and alert even today in heaven. And God is their God. Then there's Jesus' clear teaching on the doctrine of resurrection. John chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the deeds, evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Notice two resurrections, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. And good deeds and evil deeds characterize those two groups of people. Those who have done the good deeds, those who are the righteous, are resurrection to eternal life. And it, almost as if Jesus is there um, alluding to Daniel chapter 12, which I read to you earlier, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to contempt. And then John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And in that statement, Jesus is saying that he is the resurrection. Who is the one who will resurrect all men? It's Jesus. Just as he, gave, just as he gives each one of us life, he, will, he himself will utter the words and all of us will come out of the tomb. That's his promise in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 11. Then in the book of Acts, you see the resurrection as the central element of all the preaching of the apostles, so much so that when Paul is arrested and put on trial, Paul doesn't say, I was arrested for being in the temple or I was arrested because the Jews don't like me. But he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I am on trial today for the hope of the resurrection. That was the central issue. If Paul had shut up about the resurrection, namely the resurrection of Jesus, nobody would have opposed him. He could have preached any man-made, mythical, nonsense, mysticism that he wanted to. Nobody would have opposed him. But he preached a bodily resurrection of all men, beginning with Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified, and that they could not stand. And Paul said to Agrippa when he was on trial before Agrippa, I think it's in Acts chapter 26, Paul said to Agrippa, why is it considered amazing to you people that God should raise the dead? Man, why would you oppose this? 
Do you think God has neither the power nor the will to do this? Why would you consider this amazing? And in the epistles, Paul fleshed out the doctrine of resurrection. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. First Thessalonians chapter 4, a passage that is typically taken to describe the rapture. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, those who have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then I could read to you two big passages from Revelation, which I won't because we're running out of time. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, describe both the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. The resurrection of the righteous is the first resurrection of which Christ is the first fruits of that. We will enjoy that someday, and all the Old Testament saints will enjoy that. That's the doctrine of the first resurrection. And the resurrection of the wicked is that second resurrection uh, before they are cast into eternal death, which is the second death. Now, that's an overview of what the New Testament and Old Testament say about the doctrine of resurrection. But now we have to ask, answer the question, what then do we say about the body that we are to have in that resurrected state? And this brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you say, finally, because I thought this whole thing was going to be another series almost as long as the Gospel of John. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to pick it up at verse 35, and I'll give you just a quick brief overview of the context. Paul is answering some who in the Corinthian church, mentioned in verse 12, who say that there was no resurrection of the dead. And he begins the chapter by saying the resurrection of the dead cannot be denied because, number one, it is the central element to the meaning and definition of the gospel itself. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. And then Paul says, we know that the resurrection is true because of the witnesses who saw Christ himself after he was raised from the dead. Chapter five verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 5 through 11. And then Paul gives, shows the, the theological and philosophical lunacy of denying the doctrine of resurrection and how that affects so many other doctrines within Christianity in verses 12 through uh, 19. Beginning in verse 20, the Apostle Paul speaks first about the order of resurrection. And in all the way through 29 and 34, the Apostle Paul speaks of the centrality of resurrection, not only in our salvation, but also in our sanctification and then ultimately in our service. And that brings us to verse 35, where Paul then picks up the question, verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Now, Paul is there answering the objections raised by some in the Corinthian church who, as it says in verse 12, denied the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in the Corinthian church who denied the doctrine of bodily resurrection. And so these two questions that Paul raises in verse 35, they're not just thrown out there as sort of hypotheticals that he's then going to go on to answer. These are questions and issues that would have been raised by those who denied bodily resurrection. And the Apostle Paul is answering these objections and really laying them to rest, as it were. Verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised? How is this possible? How is it possible that the dead should be raised? I mean, ultimately, we are, we are laid in the ground and our body rots. How is it possible that God should raise that rotting corpse from the dead? My great-grandparents, who I mentioned at the beginning of the service, religious people, how is it possible that their corpse, which is probably almost dust by this point, how is it possible that their corpse should be raised from the dead? It is disintegrated. It is deteriorated. It is probably eaten by worms and maggots. What type of power is necessary to raise something like that from the dead and give it new life? And furthermore, there have been not 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 or 500 of these types of people, but billions. We're talking about believing that billions upon billions of people will be resurrected from the dead. How is this possible? How is that possible? What type of being has that kind of power to raise Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived in the history of this planet from the dead. Do you think it takes a lot of power to raise one person from the dead? Say Lazarus, who was only four days dead, even though he stinketh, as the King James Version says. Imagine if he had been in the grave for four years or 40 years or 100 years. What type of power does it take to 
fabricate a body again out of almost nothing and raise it from the dead. But then to do this multiplied billions upon billions of times. And so you have to get into the Greek way of thinking that was prevalent in Corinth. In the Greek mind, the idea of resurrection was an absurdity. It was stupid. All of the world religions of that day, none of them looked forward to a bodily resurrection because they were infected with a view, a, a form of Gnosticism, which infected all of culture and philosophy and politics and theology and everything. Everything was permeated by the Gnostic way of thinking. Just as postmodernism permeates everything around us today, everything in the first century was permeated by Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the belief that everything material or physical is bad, everything spiritual and non-material is good. And so why in the world would you want to live forever in that body, the body you have right now? Why would you want to live in that? That's absurd, isn't it? With all of its aches and pains, with all of its groaning, with all the snapping of your joints and the, the aching back every morning when you wake up, why would you want to spend eternity in that? Why would you want to spend eternity in an old, decrepit body like that? Who would look forward to that and want that? So in the Greek way of thinking, that was absurd. To the Greek way of thinking, real liberation, salvation, was deliverance from the physical realm. And into that steps Christianity that says, no, what God has planned is something even greater. Eternity in a physical realm. And the Greeks said, who would want that? And so that way of thinking crept into the church. And they began to deny the idea of bodily resurrection. It was for the Greeks an absurdity. It is for the Christian the center of our faith. It's the center of it. We serve a resurrected Messiah and we get eternity in resurrected bodies. That is Christianity. But to the Greeks, it was absurdity. So how would this happen? What kind of being has the power to do this? And then further, the next question in verse 35, with what kind of body do they come? You can be resurrected in that body? You better hope not. Am I going to get this body forever? I better hope not. You better hope not. We all hope not. Well, what kind of body then do we get for eternity? See, the Greeks had no way of thinking about a glorified eternal, imperishable body that would never age and never deteriorate, never decay. They had no categories for that. And so, of course, these two sentences, these two questions make sense from a pagan perspective. You take God out of the equation, a God who has the power to do this and the ability to do this, you take God out of that equation, and then these questions make sense. Well, then who has the ability to do this? Nobody has the ability to do this. Once God is removed from the from the picture, we question who would have the power to do this and why anybody would want to have something like this happen and what kind of a body could they come uh, could they come forth with and that is why Paul it is because these people in asking these questions had taken God out of the picture that is why Paul says in verse 36 you fool and it sounds just as harsh as it reads there unless you have a modern translation that tries to soften it and translates it with something like now that's just a silly thought or something like that some modern translations do try and soften it because it is the word both fool and you are emphatic fool you are. Jim, that's not very nice. That you should have given me a trigger warning before you told me that I was a fool. And now I want to go to a safe space and color in my coloring books and process this intolerance that you've just expressed to me. No, fool is the appropriate word because it is only a moron or a fool. That word perfectly describes somebody who removes God from the equation and then says, how is this possible? But once you put God into the equation and his power... And his plan, then of course it's possible, right? Isn't it possible that a God who's created all of this out of nothing could raise a few billion people from the grave? Perfectly possible, right? Look out at the stars at night. You realize that all of these galaxies and universes and stars that we see, all of these suns that light up the night sky, all of it was spoken into existence out of nothing, and it didn't tire God out one bit to do it. It didn't diminish his power at all. He wasn't exhausted when he did that. So he, he could raise resurrect billions of people. That's no problem for him. Verse 36. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now Paul's going to give three analogies to answer these questions. How is it possible and what kind of body? Three analogies. One from plants, one from animals, and an analogy from stars. Plants, animals, and stars. Now watch as his argument unfolds. Verse 36. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now this is the analogy from the plant world. In the spring, you walk out into your garden, if you plant things or, or um, 
you plant a garden, then you walk out into your garden and you take a seed, bare grain, perhaps of wheat or, well, you wouldn't do this, you don't plant wheat in your garden, but corn or pea or something like that. And you look at that seed that is in your hand. And does it not amaze you that, to think that when you drop that seed into the ground and you wait a couple of weeks, that a plant comes out of that? I would like to use the term miracle to describe that, but it's not a miracle, it's just providence. But it is mind-boggling, is it not, that out of that seed would come a plant? This year I planted a little tiny corn seed like this, and now my corn is as tall as I am. Out of a little tiny corn seed. And so the, here's the analogy. You take the bare grain, you take that, that chunk of corn which has died, it has no life in itself, and having died, you take that and you put it into the ground, and out of that seed that you placed into the ground, a metaphor in here in our context for burial, out of that comes something that is the same thing and yet entirely different from what you put into the ground. There is a difference, is there not, between the seed and the plant that comes from the seed. But are they the same thing? Yeah, corn seeds don't grow peas. Pea seeds don't grow corn. You plant a corn seed, you get a corn plant. You plant a pea seed, you get a pea plant. That's how it works. And so there is a both continuity and transformation in the plant world in terms of the seed that is planted and the plant that comes from it. So you plant the bare seed, which has died. You put it into the ground. And there is a one-to-one correspondence between that seed that is placed in the ground and the plant that comes from it because they are the same species. And listen, all of the genetics, all of the genetic information for that plant is already in that seed, right? And that seed can only produce one kind of plant, and that seed is only going to produce one plant. You don't know what that plant is going to look like entirely until the plant grows from the seed. But all of the corn in my row of corn plants, all of them are different, each one. Some of those stalks will produce two ears of corn, some of them one ear of corn. Some of them produce big ears of corn, some of them small ears of corn. Some of them have lots of leaves, some of them have very little leaves. Some of them, the tassels on it or the, the, the silk part of it up at the top is, is really tall. Some of them are much shorter. Every plant is different because every plant, the result of every plant, the plant that results is different because of the genetics inside of the seed itself. But though they are the same, they're also much different. They're much different in terms of their shape and in terms of their form. And when you plant the seed in the ground and the plant comes out of that seed, do the seed and the plant both exist at the same time? They certainly don't exist in the same form. And if I were to grow out, go out in my garden right now and pull up one of my corn plants, would I find the seed underneath there? No, I wouldn't. Because the seed has been planted and the seed has deteriorated. The seed has died. It has now turned into something that it was not before but something that it was before. And so it is in the resurrection body. And here's Paul's point. You wonder how it is that you can put a body in the ground and God at some future point, when that body is deteriorated and gone, will raise from it a brand new body that is the same and yet different. How is that possible? Here's Paul's answer. God does it every single day, day after day, year after year, century after century, and he has done this since the garden. In seeds. It happens all around you all the time. Because God is the one who does this. He is the one who makes the plant grow from the seed. So if God does this thousands, no, billions of times each and every day with all kinds of seeds, what type of a fool then says God cannot do that with a body if he does this with seeds? Do you see the point? So that's Paul's analogy. First from the seed world, God does this constantly and he will raise you from the dead. And and, and there is a, there's another similarity here. There is a correspondence between the body that is buried and the body that is raised. The body of Jesus that was raised had the scars from the crucifixion, from the passion. So it was the same body. But it was, what is it, identically the same body? No, it was the same body glorified in a different form. So you have the seed, and you look at the plant, and you think these are radically different. But yet they are the same. But they have undergone a transformation. In what? In the burying and in the raising of it. That's the analogy. Now, Paul gives a second analogy, and this one from Animals and Stars. Uh, before I go on to that, let me give you a quote from John MacArthur. He says this, In a similar way, our resurrected bodies as believers will have a continuity with the bodies we have now. Our bodies will die, and they will change form, but they will still be our bodies. Surely it is not too hard to believe that God, who has worked this process daily through the centuries in his creation of plants, can do it with men. So with what kind of body? Paul says, if you doubt how it is that God could do this, he can do it because he demonstrates this power and this process each and every day, all around us, all the time. Most of us are oblivious to it. But listen, I hope that from now on, when you go out and you plant your garden, and I, every spring, I think this, I'm planting a seed that's going to be different. And this is, to me, a picture of the resurrection. 
Every spring, I'm reminded of that. And I love it. Maybe that's why I love gardening. Because I think maybe one of these days I'll have a body like this cornstalk. Skinny and, and lively. <laughs> the second analogy is animals and stars. Animals and stars. Verse uh, 39. Or animals is the second one. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another flesh of fish. You can maybe put in there. Therefore, since there is a flesh of birds and a flesh of fish and a flesh of animals and a flesh of men, there can also be a resurrection flesh. Can there not be? And this deals with the creative, God's creative ability. Is God creative enough to come up with a way of raising us from the dead and giving us the flesh, even a flesh that we are not even familiar with now? Isn't that possible? Isn't it possible that God could come up with a way of resurrecting your body and giving you a body that is your body now, but so transformed that it is something yet to be seen and yet to be created? Well, that's certainly possible. And we understand the analogy that there's one flesh of beasts and another flesh of men, right? You have the, the flesh that you have is different. It's a different uh, complexity, a different makeup, and a, a different DNA than the flesh that, is, that cows have. And cows have a different flesh than pigs. And pigs have a different flesh than turkeys. And turkeys have a different flesh than chickens. And even chickens and turkeys have different flesh. They have white meat and dark meat. I remember as a kid asking my mom if I had white meat and dark meat, right? Is everything from here down dark and everything from here up white inside? Because I had a, I saw that in the animals and didn't understand how can one animal have two different types of flesh? And yet it's the same flesh, but it's slightly different. And so there's all kinds of variety even in the, even in the created realm around us in the animals and everything that is not... Uh, a cow or a, a pig or a turkey obviously tastes like chicken, even though it might be a shark or a dolphin or whatever it is. Everything tastes like chicken. So we see the variety around us in what God has made. How then can you argue that God cannot make another kind of flesh? You say, with what kind of body do they come forth? Well, God has made cows, pigs, chickens, fish. Don't you think he can recreate you? This speaks to God's creative ability, his, his creativity. And you think that God can design something that's even better than what you have right now? It certainly is. And then Paul gives us an analogy from the stars. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And now he's speaking not of, uh, of, uh, of bodies, physical bodies like you and I dwell in, but of the, of the glories of the heavenly bodies, the, the, the stars and, and planets. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Just as God has created all kinds of variety in the plant world, he's created all kinds of variety in the animal world, and then look beyond this earth, he's created all kinds of variety in the heavens. Yeah, the stars are different in color. You look through a, a telescope and you see different stars. There are different colors, some blue, some yellow, some green, some red. All of them are different, and they're different in size. There are suns and stars out there that are millions of times bigger than the star that warms our planet. Millions of times. And they burn with different types of things and at different rates and in different ways. All kinds of variety. And so since this variety exists in our world, and listen, in all of creation, does not God, who spoke all of this into being, have both the creativity and the power to raise you from the dead? See his argument? And there's all kinds of varieties in this glory, and so it is in the resurrected form. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now, in the following verses, Paul gives four comparisons that contrast our present state with our future glory. Four comparisons. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is, shown, it is sown first a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I'm going to break down each one of those four things. First, there is the perishable versus imperishable, dishonor versus glory, weakness versus power, and natural versus spiritual. Those are the four contrasts. Now, four of those describe our present state. Perishable, dishonor, weakness, and natural. First, the perishable versus the imperishable. The word that Paul uses for perishable there means subject to deterioration and decay. That's what the idea means. It perishes, like your food perishes if you don't put it in the fridge. It deteriorates, it decays, and it gets ugly. That is our, our body. A part, it, our body started deteriorating and decaying the minute you were born. You realize that? You're on a crash course with death from the minute you came out of the womb. You were dying, and you started dying. And you were continually dying, and you're still dying. But the difference is that back when you were younger, your cells recreated and replenished themselves at a much better, more accurate, and greater rate than they are today. 
right? So that's starting to slow down. Age is catching up with you. But you have been dying ever since you were born. And the body in which we now live is a perishable body. It is subject to decay and deterioration. Ultimately, that decay and deterioration will catch up with us. And we will breathe our last. And they will throw us in a hole. And we will decay and deteriorate until we are no more. And Christ raises us from the dead. So the body that we have now is a body that is subject to deterioration and decay. And so it rots. But the body with which we will be raised is an imperishable body. In fact, this is the central idea of the resurrection body. This is the central point. It's imperishable. It is not subject to decay and deterioration. It, it, it cannot get weak. It cannot get ill. It won't get sick. It won't die. It'll never go downhill, though you will age. You will always have a years associated with your existence, even in heaven. Though that is true, your body will never show the effects of that. You will never go downhill to the point where you are careening toward death as you are this day, because it will be an imperishable body, no longer subject to death or decay, no longer able to rot or die at all. That's the idea. And this is so much central to the idea of bodily resurrection that Paul uh, I think it's in, what it is in verses 50 to 58. I think it's three times the Apostle Paul mentions this idea of being immortal. This is the idea of a resurrected body. It's immortal. It's not going to die. It won't get sick. It won't get ill. It won't get old. But it'll be immortal and imperishable. And the second contrast is between dishonor and glory. This is in verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. And by glory there, Paul doesn't have the idea of radiance and shining forth the type of thing that we normally associate with glory. Uh, the glory is used there in a sense that contrasts it with dishonor. It is sown a dishonorable body. The body that I have now and that you have now is a body that by its very nature is dishonorable. That's why we clothe it. That's why we put clothing on. It's because our bodies in this state and in this creation are dishonorable. Furthermore, we do not have the ability in this body to honor God as we should. So it is actually unable to bring honor to God or to be as honorable as it should be as a body that is intended to be used for the honor and glory of God. And then when you lay that body, our body, in the, in the grave, when you are laid in the grave someday, your body will then be very dishonorable, won't it? Because it will be starting to decay and to rot. And they will try and delay that as much as they can to have the funeral and have the viewing and then rush you into the ground. They will do everything they can to slow that down for a period of time. But it cannot stop that, and it cannot reverse that. And eventually, when they drop you in the ground, you will be in a very dishonorable state. But when it is raised, when your body is raised, it will be raised in glory, in a state of honor. Then the body will be honorable, and then the body will be able to honor God as it should. I'm looking forward to that day when all of my desires to honor God that I have in spirit will be able to be expressed with my body, so that I'm able to honor God in my service and in everything that I do. And the resurrection body will be a body fit to honor God. The third contrast is between weakness and power. Verse 44. Nope, 43. Sorry, I missed it. it is I'm not used to taking this many verses all at one time. You can tell that, can't you? Verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And there's another contrast between weakness and power. The body that you sit in today right now is a weak body. Some of you are younger than me. Some of you are stronger than me. Uh, I'm stronger than some of you. But we're all very, very weak, aren't we? Even if you spent your life lifting weights and buffing up and keeping yourself in, in good shape, you're still going to die. And relatively speaking, your body is still very weak. Because all of your strength can be taken from you in an instant, just like that. You can be incapacitated in an instant. And it can be something that's entirely outside of your control. Just about eight or nine months ago, I was... On a Sunday morning, I was lifting something into the back of my truck, something that wasn't heavy. It was light enough that I could curl the weight with one of my arms with no problem. But I lifted it up in the back of my truck, and I thought, oh, that hurt. Oh, I said, I almost yelled that loud, too. I said, oh, that hurt. That, didn't, that wasn't quite right. Something went out in my back. And I had a hard time getting from out there into here on a Sunday morning. And I could hardly walk for a week. What did I do? I have no idea what I did. I have no idea what I did. But all of my strength, my vitality, my quickness, my health, my ability, all of it, taken away from me in an instant. As strong as we may think that our bodies are, they can be incapacitated in a moment because they are subject to disease. There is nobody here that is immune from cancer. There is nobody here that is immune from death. We are all very weak and in a very weakened state. But in the resurrection, it's power. We'll be resurrected 
my back's not going to go out on me again. It will be resurrected in a state where we will not be, we will be immune to all of those things because death and disease and discomfort and all those things will be put away with. But we will be resurrected in a state that is characterized by power, not by weakness. And the fourth contrast is between the natural body and the spiritual body. We exist now in a natural body. We will be raised a spiritual body. Now, by natural and spiritual, Paul doesn't mean that a resurrected body, a material body, is going to be made out of that which is spiritual. It's impossible to have something non-material make up something that is material. But rather, it it describes the, the state in which we live. Right now, we live in an earthly realm. I have an earthly body that is fit to live in this realm that God has created and put it. This body can heal itself to a certain extent. This body can sleep and rest and recuperate. This body is fit really for this realm and to live in this realm and function in this realm that God has created. In the spiritual realm or in the eternal realm, which is characterized by control of the spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the dominance of our spiritual selves, we will have bodies that will be fit for that spiritual realm. So as it is right now, my physical body, this natural earthly body, is not really fit for the spiritual reality that exists within me as a spiritual being. Because now I find that I have the spiritual desire in me to do things that my body is too weak and too tired to do. I would love to be able to pray longer than I do. But I have this stupid brain that distracts me and keeps me from doing all of the things to serve and honor God that I would love to do. I would love to be able to worship longer. I would love to be able to preach longer. I would love to be able to sit and listen to good preaching longer. I would love to be able to do all of those things. But our bodies place limitations on us, don't they? Your body is almost crying out right now, shut up so we can get up and go home and that I can move, right? But we would all enjoy to be able to fellowship and, and do things that honor God and serve Him much more, much longer than we do and with much more energy than we do, but our bodies keep us from doing that. My body keeps me from expressing the reality of my renewed and regenerated spirit because I am a new person with new affections, new desires, and a resurrected soul that lives in a body that has not experienced any kind of resurrection at all. And so my body must be put off and it must be done away with and cast into the ground so that it can be raised again in a different form that is fit for the new Jim Osmond that dwells this rotting corpse. Got the picture? So physical body or natural body and spiritual body. Now, Someone will ask a few questions regarding the resurrection. Maybe this has raised a couple of them. Let me quickly answer them, and, and then uh, I, will give, I will give pause to your body so that you can get up and relieve the aches and pains that you have going on even right now. Here's the two questions. Someone will say, what about, could, could, is our resurrection body going to be identical to the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus? Because Scripture says that our bodies will be conformed, made into conformity with His glorious body. And so since he got a resurrection body, he's the first fruits of ours, what will be the exact similarities between his body and ours? Will our body be able to walk through walls, as some say, but I don't believe Jesus did, but some people say that he did? Will our body be able to go instantly from point A to point B, no matter how far away it is, and be able to transverse long distances like that? Will our body be able to appear and disappear? Did you read anything about our abilities to do that in the text that we just covered that I missed because I didn't? I didn't catch any of that. Now, maybe it's possible, maybe it is, that our resurrected bodies will be identical to that and have all of those capabilities. Maybe that that is the case. But I think it is good to stick with the text and just say that we don't know that those things most certainly will be true of us in the resurrected state. Maybe they will be. It is also possible, and I throw this out to you, it is also possible that the qualities and characteristics that Jesus' resurrected body had or the things that he did, were qualities and characteristics that he had by virtue of his deity and not by virtue of his resurrected body. In other words, Jesus' resurrected state and our resurrected state is different in this, that he is the God-man in human flesh, and we are not going to be God-man in human flesh. We have no deity. And so those things that Jesus was able to do, those may have been things that he was able to do because he is God in a resurrected body, but not things that we will be able to enjoy in a resurrected body. Now, some people will say, if we're going to be raised in power then, is it going to be possible for us to do all kinds of magnificent and extraordinary things? I've heard people teach that in our resurrected body that we will be able to fly in the new creation, right, like the last son of Krypton, and that we will be able to lift up buildings and throw around cars, and we will be able to have massive feats of strength and speed and agility and all of these things. And just as I told you earlier that it is always good to not let Hollywood write your theology for you, 
Keep that in mind. It is not good to let DC or Marvel write your theology for you. So what does the text say? The text says that we will be raised in an imperishable form, meaning we will not deteriorate or decay. The text says that we will be raised in a glorious form, meaning that we will be fit to honor God as we should. The text says that we will be raised in a spiritual form, that is, a form that is fit for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the expression of our renewed and regenerated spirit. And the text says that we will be raised in a powerful form. By powerful, I don't think that the Apostle Paul has in mind the ability to accomplish superhuman feats of strength. I think that what the Apostle Paul has in mind is anything that God wants and anything that I desire to do in my glorified body to honor God and live with Him, I will have the ability to do. The statement, the spirit is strong, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, that will never come from our lips in eternity. We'll never say that. Because we'll no longer have a weak flesh. We have a powerful flesh. And if I desire to do it, I will be able to do it. Now, Christian, this is what Scripture promises. This is what Christ has promised. Christ was resurrected from the dead to secure this for us. And now we wait. Absolutely certain that this day will come. And they may throw us into the ground. And our bodies may rot. But we will be resurrected in a new form. Imperishable. Glorious. Powerful. And spiritual. Never to die again. That is the promise of Scripture. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious and loving God. Thank you for this hope that we have in Jesus Christ because of what you have done. You have secured all of this for us, and let us never be forgetful of that. We pray that you would help us to think biblically in terms of what the future holds for us. We look forward to such a great resurrection and such a great eternity that you have planned. You have not, you have not given us the best here. The best is yet to come by far, and it will far outstrip anything that we are familiar with in this life. It will be, it will be the ability to enjoy your presence and to and to enjoy one another's presence and to fellowship and to uh, enjoy bodies that do not wither, they do not deteriorate or decay. Uh, what a glorious future that is, and we thank you for it. You have done all of this, and we thank you for Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.